Hey, and welcome back to the Offspring Magazine, the podcast. I'm your host, Marcel, and this is another episode in our series on RNA-related research. Today's guest is Dr. Denny Nedjalkova, who leads the Mechanisms of Protein Biogenesis Group at the MPI of Biochemistry in Martinsried. We'll explore Dr. Nedjalkova's scientific trajectory and discuss topics ranging from the genetic code to RNA sequencing, with a focus on an understudied class of molecules, namely transfer RNAs. I hope you'll enjoy this. Okay then, hello and welcome and thank you very much um, Dr. Danina Djakova for agreeing to do this. I'm very happy to welcome you and um, to talk to you about a yeah, class of molecules that is a bit underappreciated I think, uh, namely tRNAs. And uh, we like to start our interviews with getting to know our guests a bit. So um, the first question I'd like to ask you is how you actually got interested in science in the first place. Hi, Marcel. It's really great to have you here. And it's, um, it's a fantastic podcast series that you're running. So I'm very excited to be talking to you today. How I got interested in science. Well, I think, you know, I never had a microscope when I was a child. So that answer is off the table. Um, and um, I actually grew up wanting to be a, a doctor. And uh, I realized while growing up that I didn't really have all the qualities that I needed to to become a good doctor. So biology sounded like a good idea um, at that time. And so it was never really a conscious choice. It was it was just something that I was always interested in. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to make it a career. So um, so, yeah. Okay, great. So um, what did you then in the end end up studying and why? So I, um, I grew up in Sofia in Bulgaria and um, I started studying biotechnology at the University of Sofia, which right after high school. And, and this was also, um, again, because that was one of the most interesting programs that were available at the time. Um, and um, I also had the great opportunity while beginning my studies to join a European first level degree, as it was called, so a, Euro a European bachelor degree in, in biotechnology um, that included the University of Sofia and 11 other universities um, throughout Europe. And um, the studies were taking place in, uh, in Italy at the University of Perugia. And this was in 2002. And it was at a time when the Bologna um, agreement had just been passed and the EU was harmonizing its um, its university um, education systems and these kinds of European degrees were popping up um, in different places um, to try and experiment with seeing whether um, you know students can benefit from the expertise of professors from different universities and and hopefully um, get a better training um, in this way and this was also financed through the Erasmus program so it was uh, really great for uh, students that would have otherwise not been able to afford to um, to study abroad and and this is the degree I I got after three years 
Um, and it was also a great opportunity um, to get involved um, in lab work very early on because the degree was very focused on students having um, laboratory skills already after the bachelor's. So our summers uh, were dedicated to um, internships in um, different labs in different countries. And although now I realize it must have been very painful for the people who were training a 19-year-old, <laughs> these were extremely beneficial because um, I realized very early on that I love being in the lab and that I'm, I'm, I really enjoy doing experiments. And um, that was very helpful for me to decide that this is something that I want to uh, continue doing um, for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. And your research focus now is on, like broadly speaking, gene expression. So what is it that eventually got you interested in gene expression from like all the topics you could have chosen right so i mean this is also very interesting and, and also kind of a coincidence um for my phd i worked on rna viruses uh, that we now know a lot about um so i was working on artery and coronaviruses which back then were um, um a lot less popular than they are now and and what these viruses are are they're essentially a messenger rna so this is what their genome is. And the first thing they need to do when they enter a host cell is to um, unpack this genome and have it translated by the host cell. And so obviously the expression of the viral RNA is a very key step in their um, replication cycle. And so while studying them, um, I was essentially studying gene expression throughout my PhD of a virus. Uh, but of course, since it uses the cell's machinery, since it doesn't bring any ribosomes along, then many of the concepts um, that I learned while studying viruses are very much applicable to gene expression uh, programs in cells because viruses don't invent anything. They just borrow tricks that, um, that cells have come up with um, to solve certain problems. Um, when you have, for example, one long messenger RNA that needs to give rise to several proteins um, uh, in the cell and also in a very robust and rapid manner so that new virus particles can be produced very quickly. Um, and so after my PhD, I, um, I was looking for um, new areas to work in that would also allow me to, um, to gain new um, skills. And back at the time, um, next generation sequencing approaches were just coming up. And I realized that, you know, studying one gene and one protein is probably not going to be the way that science is going to work in the future, thanks to these technologies. And so I specifically looked for postdoctoral training opportunities that would allow me to learn how to how to use these approaches um, in a to kind of query gene expression in a much more global manner and also in cells because it, I always found that virology is extremely exciting um, but it can also be a little bit lonely because everybody's got their favorite virus and mm -hmm. um, everybody thinks that their virus is the most important one. Um, and so I really wanted to take a step back and, you know, join the, the cell biology community because I think, you know, there this is probably a little bit less pronounced. And of course, what we learn is a lot more generally applicable to many different um, questions. I see. But then the field of gene expression is also a very vast field. And in the end, you ended up with tRNAs, among other things. So um, maybe you can just very briefly describe what made you like focus on tRNAs in the end. Well, so, so this was um, the, the project that I ended up working on as a postdoc 
was something that was um, very new at the time. And I ended up also joining a, a Max Planck research group, a starting group just like my own. Um, and that group was led by Sebastian Lidl at the MPI in, uh, in Münster, the MPI of Molecular Biomedicine. And so Sebastian had made a very interesting discovery as a postdoc, which was that um, a ubiquitin-related modifier that he thought was modifying proteins was actually um, a part of a sulfur transfer relay that was important for modifying transfer RNAs. Um, and so he had ended up uh, working on transfer RNAs and trying to understand what the biological role is of this modification that is um, mediated by the ubiquitin-related modifier pathway. Um, and coincidentally, around the time that he was starting his lab and I was looking for a postdoc, uh, ribosome profiling was published as a method to query translation in living cells with codon resolution on endogenous transcripts based on um, sequencing of ribosome-protected footprints. Um, and so when I started uh, my postdoc, um, what I was planning to do was to look at how does the loss of a tRNA modification impact translation of the codons to uh, which this tRNA matches in, in living cells with this back then very, very new method. So it was really driven by the new um, opportunities that um, a new method uh, for querying gene expression um, opened up essentially at that time. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So before we dive right in uh, or more into your own research on uh, tRNAs on gene expression in general, I think we should, for the general audience, just um, try to explain some of the concepts and um, the, yeah, basics around tRNAs and gene expression in general. So the audience should already be familiar with mRNAs, um, either because of the podcast <laughs> or because of mRNA vaccines. Um, but I think tRNAs are not really in the spotlight of the general public and not even in the like scientifically educated um, in the spotlight of scientifically educated people that do not work on gene expression so um, what exactly are tna trnas how do they compare to mrnas and how do they fit into this whole cascade that eventually leads to the expression of a gene right i mean so tRNAs are pretty essential because I would I would say that you know, mRNAs are sort of a passive um, um, molecule that that helps the um, expression of the genetic information that is encoded in DNA into the sequence of proteins, which are the biological effectors of most functions in in living cells as we know them. But that transfer of information and transfer is a key word here is impossible without transfer RNAs or tRNAs and and tRNAs are, um, they're all very short. Um, they're only about 76 nucleotides in length compared to mRNAs, which could be tens of thousands of nucleotides. Um, and, and tRNAs serve this adapter function um, to couple the um, nucleotide triplets in mRNAs that specify an amino acid to that particular amino acid, and only one of the 20 ones, um, and only that particular one. And they do this by um, having a very specific structure. They're folded um, like a clover leaf. And at one end, um, they have a, an anti-codon triplet that matches um, the mRNA codon. 
And at the other end, they carry the amino acid that needs to be incorporated into the newly built protein by the ribosome when it encounters the specific codon. And so without transfer RNAs, there are no proteins. Um, and But because um, they were considered mostly as passive adapter molecules for a very long time, um, I think this is why they, they are a little bit understudied. And so there, there are certain things that we know very well in terms of how mRNA expression is regulated and what its biological significance is, but we know much less about um, tRNAs. Mm -hmm. So you could mainly say in comparison to mRNAs, they are very structured, right? This is a very important feature Absolutely. of tRNAs. Um, they carry amino acids and are therefore basically the mediators between like amino acids that will be incorporated in um, chains of amino acids that eventually make up proteins and the mRNA itself, right? Absolutely. And and the structure is really, really important, as you said, and, and uh, because ribosomes decode a messenger RNA extremely rapidly um, with about five codons per second in eukaryotic cells and even up to 20 codons per second in, in bacteria. And in order to do this so rapidly, they cannot spend a lot of time remodeling a transfer RNA that comes into the A site to make it fit the codon. And so the specific structure of the tRNAs is what makes them so similar to each other that to a ribosome, they're all pretty much the same until the ribosome then can check whether their anticodon triplet is really matching the three nucleotides that it mm -hmm. has to decode mm -hmm. into an amino acid right now. So this okay. is where the structure is extremely critical. Yeah. And because these words have come up now several times, maybe you can specifically stress what's the relation between tRNAs and codons or anticodons, and maybe more generally, because that's something that many people, I think, have heard of, what's the relation between tRNAs and the genetic code? Absolutely. So... So the genetic code is essentially how um, a ribosome reads the nucleotide sequence that specifies a protein. And this is done in, um, in steps of three nucleotides. And so there are 61 trinucleotides or codons that specify the 20 amino acids that get incorporated into proteins. And so, of course, when we think about trinucleotides, there are, of course, 64 possibilities. Um, so three of those um, are stop codons. So they tell the ribosome that this is where it needs to terminate translating a messenger RNA. And the, yeah, the other 61 codons are the ones that specify the 20 amino acids. And another thing that is really important for the genetic code is its redundancy, because of course 61 is more than 20. So for 18 out of the 20 amino acids, we have more than one codon that specifies them, and then also more than one tRNA that brings that amino mm -hmm. acid. And this is, I guess, where you could already start thinking, hmm, maybe certain <laughs> tRNAs are better in translating or translate fast or facilitate faster translation, some uh, slower translation. Why do we have this redundancy? So I guess this discrepancy between 20 and 61 already tells you that there must be going on some regulation on the level absolutely of and this is you know the genetic code is universal so every living organism 
on this planet is using the exact same code. Um, and it's really fascinating. And I think there, you know, th th there's been an enormous amount of research into exactly the points that you're raising. What are the evolutionary pressures um, that act on the genetic code? What are the reasons for the redundancy? And usually, I think probably the, 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 the biggest concept that has emerged from those studies is that redundancy is a way to ensure um, accuracy. So, for example, in, in certain um, cases, some codons may differ only at one position out of the three nucleotides. And this, of course, if a ribosome needs to distinguish two good base pairs from three good base pairs, this is a, a point where errors can, can arise very frequently. Now, if the ribosome makes an error, but that third position always specifies the same amino acid. This is what we call four codon boxes. So they have the same, the first two nucleotides are the same and the third one is the only one that differs. Very often, all these codons specify the same amino acid. So this is a, a way to ensure that you will not make a mistake and misincorporate or put the wrong amino acid into the growing um, chain. And that would, of course, um, can impact the function of the newly made protein. So um, that's one of the main reasons for the redundancy. But you're absolutely right that um, very frequently, um, even if an amino acid is specified by four codons, the usage of these codons in the mRNAs in a cell is not random. Some are preferred over others. Mm -hmm. And this is where a lot of the regulation uh, possibilities come from, um, from the use of, you know, the differential usage of, let's say, um, more frequently um, used codons versus less frequently used codons and um, the abundance of the matching tRNAs in cells. Okay, uh, getting back to the structure or composition and features in general of uh, tRNAs, we already learned they are folded, very structured, they carry amino acids. And when you talked about your previous work, you already shortly mentioned that they are modified as well. And I think one interesting anecdote um, that shows how important also fundamental research on tRNAs has been in the past is um, the relation between work on tRNAs that Catalin Carico did, pioneer of mRNA and technology for therapeutic uh, use cases, and um, yeah, her discovery of how to use mRNAs in like a medical uh, context. Um, maybe you could... Um, elaborate a bit on that and link that to this third feature of tRNAs, namely their modification status. Right. So um, indeed, tRNAs are the most heavily modified nucleic acids in cells. Um, and this is because, of course, the four nucleotides in an RNA um, only affords so many possibilities for base bearing and structure formation. But when we add specific chemical groups to some of those nucleosides, this can modify um, the ability of those nucleosides to base pair. It can prevent it or enhance it. And, and this is how tRNAs um, are folded very frequently. Um, so many of the chemically modified sites really ensure um, this cloverleaf uniform structure of these molecules, while many others are found in the anticodon domain of tRNA, so where they um, they modulate the base pairing with codons on the ribosome. So these are very um, generally the two major groups of, of modifications on, on, on tRNAs. And 
Um, I think Kathleen Karikos research uh, and that particular paper you're referring to is something that I teach to my students at the TU Munich in our paper reading course because I think it's it's a fantastic example of how you know trying to think of a, of a problem um, from a new perspective can really um, lead to um, unanticipated uh, results. So what Kathleen Kaiko did was um, she was um, really facing enormous challenges when trying to use um, mRNA synthesized in the lab, what we call by in vitro um, transcribed from nucleotides that carry no modifications. Um, to use it as a therapeutic in, in animals. And what kept happening was that the animals were getting very, very sick because they were mounting this enormous immune response to what should be a completely innocuous agent, which is just messenger RNA. Um, and so after struggling with this for a while, what Kathleen Carico did was she she realized that, you know, there has to be something about the RNAs in our cells that makes them different from the RNAs that we can synthesize in the lab. And so she took different classes of RNAs um, from bacterial cells and also from, um, from mammalian cells. Uh, and she split them into messenger RNA, transfer RNA, and transfer RNA is a very abundant, so you can get bucket loads of them from, um, from any experiment. Uh, um, and so she tested the immunogenicity of these different RNA molecule types from cells. And she found that tRNAs were the ones that were the least immunogenic of everything she injected in, in, in mice or um, she, um, she transfected in, in cultured cells. And so she postulated that this was because of their highly modified nature. Um, and then she did really very elegant experiments to, to prove this hypothesis and, and to show that what had been missing in all of these efforts uh, to make an mRNA um, therapeutic was the fact that this mRNA had to be modified in order to not be recognized by the innate immune pathways in cells. And I have to say that we still don't exactly understand how this works. I think it's really fascinating. Um, so there's quite some work to be done there on how cells recognize that you know the RNA has certain chemical modifications and that can be treated as one of our own. Um, but nevertheless, you know, even if we don't understand the exact mechanism, this has had enormous implications for um, the, our ability to develop effective vaccines for SARS-CoV-2. And if I'm not mistaken, by then people didn't know that the endogenous mRNAs of like humans or animals, and, um, for instance, also have this particular modification that she then induced after studying tRNAs. Right, and I think this was also, I mean, studying RNA modifications has been very challenging for a very long time for technical reasons. And we, we do know since the early 70s that messenger RNAs are modified as well. So in transfer RNAs, the type of chemical modifications um, varies tremendously. There's more than 150 of them that are known, and they obviously do not occur on the same molecule. Uh, some of them are very specific to um, certain organisms and certain habitats. But in messenger RNA from uh, mammalian cells, we had known uh, for a while that um, some of the adenosines carry a, a methylation at the sixth position of the base. So this is M6A. Um, but this was a sort of an esoteric finding for a very long time because, of course, we had no way of um, finding out 
at which position of a messenger RNA um, this modification is, what to what extent it's present in, let's say, the thousands of um, identical mRNA molecules in cells. And so it was, again, probably something that was on no one's radar, and it was probably hard to connect these modifications to anything related to the immune system. That would probably require a leap of... <laughs> a faith that mm -hmm. many people are probably not ready to um, to make at that point. And, and I think only since the emergence of technologies, again, based on sequencing mostly, that allow us to look for modifications in specific molecules that are not very abundant in cells, have we now become to realize that um, modifications are much more prevalent and not confined to tRNAs, mm -hmm. um, but, but also to other RNA molecules in cells pretty much all RNA molecules and cells. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you previously already mentioned next generation sequencing. And in your lab in the past, you've developed a method to sequence tRNAs using next generation sequencing. But before we go into that, I'd be interested to know how did people study tRNAs before next generation sequencing? And what were the missing parts or what kind of information couldn't you get using these um, techniques and you know, or in other words what basically motivated you then to go to next generation sequencing and apply this kind of method to tRNAs right so I think even the term next generation sequencing is a little bit outdated yeah. now so uh, <laughs> just to back up a little bit so um, in order to find the sequence of an RNA molecule um, we usually uh, use an enzyme called reverse transcriptase to make a complementary DNA, so a DNA copy of this RNA molecule, which we can then amplify by polymerase chain reaction. So even if we have very small amounts of an RNA, this complementary DNA coupled to PCR method allows us to amplify the, these, these very small amounts so that we get enough in order to determine the sequence of this RNA. And so first-generation sequencing is probably what most people know as Sanger sequencing. So in, in that approach, um, you usually need a clonal population of mice. So you need to be sequencing um, a single RNA. Um, and so this is done by having D-deoxynucleotides, which are fluorescently labeled. Um, and then, you know, you can read maybe six or 700 nucleotides with these reactions. And most of them, um, you know, this is even how the human genome was assembled. It was very painful, very expensive, and very, <laughs> very long. It took more than 10, 10 years. Um, now, what's now called second-generation sequencing or next-generation sequencing is, um, is a high-throughput method. Um, in which essentially the same principle is used. So um, DNA synthesis is still terminated by fluorescently labeled um, uh, D-deoxynucleotides, but this is done on a, a flow cell uh, for millions of molecules at a time. So of course now this allows you to determine the quantities of DNAs or RNAs from thousands of cells. Um, and so this is what essentially revolutionized the study of, of gene expression, but I would say it revolutionized molecular biology as a whole. Um, and um, so, of course, before this technology um, was invented in the mid-2000s and became available around 2010, you could only study one molecule at a time. 
Uh, so you could determine, we knew the sequence of most tRNAs, but we didn't know what their abundance was in cells uh, because we couldn't really measure it accurately. Um, and so I don't know if many of your listeners are, uh, probably uh, everybody's too young to remember microarrays, but this is how we used to determine the abundance of messenger RNAs in cells by having um, DNA probes uh, that bind to regions of, um, of an RNA and putting them on a chip and then looking at fluorescence intensity. Mm -hmm. So the, the reason why this is tricky for tRNAs is exactly their structure. So it's very hard to um, make a transfer RNA from cells linear because it's, um, its secondary structure is very, very stable and you need very high temperatures in order to, um, to melt it. And also because tRNAs are so similar to each other, it's very hard to have specific probes that then bind to those. And so this is why until Illumina sequencing, second generation sequencing came up, it was really tricky to measure the abundance of, of transfer RNAs in cells um, with, with these kind of more traditional um, approaches. Mm -hmm. Okay, but you already said you still have um, yeah, this issue that tRNAs are very structured and we already established that they are highly modified. So what did you and your team do to like, modify a normal um, next generation sequencing protocol or workflow to allow you to get information about tRNAs that maybe goes beyond also just the sequence, but also maybe modification status, maybe even structure. Right, and so um, the reverse transcriptase that we use in standard workflows in the lab are um, mostly derived from retroviruses. Um, from HIV-1, for example, many of those enzymes have been... Um, um, have been modified to, to make them more robust in the lab. Um, but what these enzymes cannot do is transcribe structured RNAs uh, like tRNAs. And they also cannot transcribe through uh, nucleosides that have a chemical modification that interferes with base bearing. They simply stop and fall off. Um, and so the resulting truncated cDNAs are pretty much everything that is in a sequencing library made with a standard workflow. Um, and so in the around 2015, um, Alan Lambowitz, um, who is a, um, a really um, um, prominent RNA biologist, discovered um, a set of enzymes which were also able to transcribe RNA, but they were not derived from viruses, but from um, bacterial mobile elements. And so these um, intron encoded reverse transcriptases are extremely ancient enzymes. They, they kind of predate the split between RNA and DNA polymerases wow. in cells. And, and what's very special about those enzymes is that the mobile elements they need to tr reverse transcribe are extremely structured. And so by evolution, these enzymes are much more suited for transcribing um, structured um, RNAs like tRNAs. Mm -hmm. And so Alan Lambowitz, together with, with Tao Pan, had already used uh, one of those enzymes uh, that is called TGERT or TIGERT, I never really know what the <laughs> <laughs> how to pronounce it, um, to, to show that in principle, this enzyme is, is much better suited to um, um, reverse transcribing endogenous, fully modified um, transfer RNAs. But 
there were still some um, problems with the with the workflow because modifications were still an issue. Um, and the way that researchers usually tried to solve this in the past was to find enzymes to erase those modifications, to allow the reverse transcriptase to go through these sites um, a little bit more easily. But none of those approaches were really perfect. Um, and, um, and so we, uh, what we were able to do was just taking a step back and really just taking that enzyme off the shelf and playing around with the reaction conditions in the lab um, just very basic things like salt, temperature, duration of the reaction, until we found the, let's say, the Goldilocks area of where the enzyme was extremely happy and able to make full-length cDNAs from fully modified um, transfer RNAs. And in that process, uh, what it was doing to overcome those modifications that usually block its progress on the tRNA was... Um, misincorporating, so making mistakes at those sites. And so these um, errors remained as a signature of a modified site in um, the sequencing libraries we generated. So along with the information on how much of each tRNA was in, in our sample, we also were very lucky to have the information of how much, um, um, what fraction of that tRNA was modified at a particular site. And, and this was also something that, you know, people found out already very early on that modifications cause um, errors during reverse transcription. But I think for us, what was really important was being able to, um, to do this in a systematic way and to do this in a way where we only had errors and no stops. Mm -hmm. So this was really critical for our workflow. Okay, but with your studies on tRNA, you're now really chartering new territory. Um, so I'd be interested to know what is your ground truth. So yeah, that is an <laughs> it's such an excellent question, and I and I have to say that in every field, um, there's probably uh, one issue on which people completely disagree, and mm -hmm. probably in the tRNA field, that would be the issue of what is ground truth, mm -hmm. um, and so how would you benchmark a workflow um, if you would want to make sure that it's quantitative? So if, it's, if you're thinking about messenger RNAs and you want to know whether your workflow quantifies them correctly, you can just synthesize messenger RNAs in the lab and mix them in proportions mm -hmm. that you would like to have and then look at you know, the observed uh, quantities versus the expected ones. Now, for tRNAs, you could do that, but you can only synthesize completely unmodified tRNAs in the lab, mm -hmm. which is absolutely not how they look like in your sample. Um, if you would want to purify each and every single tRNA from a, from a cell, that is, is also extremely challenging, again, because of their very high similarity, because of their, their structure, so standard approaches by trying to fish them out with, with complementary probes, for example, don't work. So... The way that we did it um, was by taking advantage of the fact that in some organisms, um, we know a lot about how tRNA expression is regulated. And so in single cell organisms, for example, like uh, budding yeast, the number of copies of a specific tRNA gene is directly proportional to how much of that tRNA is in the cell. Um, and so for us, this has been very useful as a ground truth. So if we see a very high correlation between our observed 
tRNA measurements versus what we expect based on gene copy number. And when I say very high, in our case, it's an R square of more than 0.9. Uh, so nearly all of the variation is explained by gene copy number. This for us is very comforting because we know that in this particular case where we expect this very high correlation, we can also observe it. Um, unfortunately, many people who develop tRNA uh, quantitation protocols do not use the sort of a ground truth benchmarking or use, for example, um, in vitro synthesized templates, which carry no modifications um, as a way to, to benchmark their workflows. And, and that can, of course, be, be problematic. But in the end, you know, we'll probably, as we learn more about um, tRNA regulation, we'll probably come up with better ground truth mm -hmm. um, approaches. But this is as, as good as, um, as, as it gets at the moment. Yeah. One interesting approach that I also came across in the past months is using nanopore sequencing now to study tRNAs. And I think in the paper I saw they even used your method <laughs> as ground truth or compared it to your method. So what do you think about these uh, new approaches? And maybe let's first establish what is nanopore sequencing? What, what are the promises that come with nanopore sequencing? And do you think... This is maybe the tRNA technology of the future, or will both Illumina sequencing and nanopore sequencing play a role in the future in studying tRNAs? Right. Well, so nanopore sequencing is the reason that next generation sequencing became second generation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, because, of course, nanopore sequencing is what we call third generation sequencing very often. Um, and this is a conceptually completely different approach to determining the sequence of, of nucleic acids. So Unlike the, um, the fluorophore-labeled chain terminator nucleotides that are used in, in Sanger sequencing and in Lumina, um, in nanopore sequencing, you can directly read uh, the, the sequence of nucleotides in the DNA or even in RNA without converting it to complementary DNA first um, through um, a method that uh, uses a motor helicase to thread this um, nucleic acid molecule through a biological pore. Yeah. So this is the nanopore um, part of it. And so when you do this under an ionic current, the fluctuations in this current as the RNA passes through the pore is what is used to infer the nucleotide sequence. Um, and so this is not, it's not a although people call it the direct, it is a direct sequencing method, but the signal that you get is in an indirect mm -hmm. measurement of which nucleotides uh, are passing through the pore. And it's been extremely exciting, and I think it has, it, it, it's really also revolutionized the way uh, we think about um, splicing, for example. There have been really important discoveries about how full length transcripts uh, look like in living cells. Because now, of course, with, with Illumina, you can only sequence about 100, 150 nucleotides. But mm -hmm. with nanopore sequencing, the sky's the limit in theory. In, pr in practice, probably around 10 kilobases, I would say. Uh, but that is already enough to, to tell you, for example, which introns are there, um, mm -hmm. which untranslated regions are coupled with which, um, other, which, uh, with which others in, um, in messenger RNA molecules. And in principle, tRNAs should have been the easiest molecule to sequence because they're extremely short. Um, the, uh, the challenges with nanopore sequencing for tRNAs is, again, the structure uh, because the motor protein that 
needs to thread those RNAs um, through the pore is not powerful enough to to really disassemble their their structure very efficiently. And um, for me, the biggest challenge of the direct RNA sequencing approaches when they're applied to tRNAs is the very low accuracy of um, of the, the 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 pore that reads RNAs. Um, so it used to be the same as the one that that that, that is reading DNA molecules, and and the accuracy was only about ninety percent. Now that may sound very high, <laughs> um, but it essentially meant that you know one in ten bases that was called was incorrect. Um, and so when you think about tRNAs and how similar they are to, they are to each other. Sometimes they differ only by a single nucleotide. Mm -hmm. And so if you have one in 10 errors, it's very hard to, to tell one molecule from another um, based on these approaches. And, and I think what's, what's also very challenging is that this change in, in, in current that is used to infer the sequence um, can also be modulated by the presence of modifications, right? So. Mm -hmm. Um, so distinguishing modified sites from the underlying nucleotide sequence is very challenging computationally. And the current approaches have trouble with, with finding where exactly a modified site is. Because what's, what's very uh, important to know about nanopore is that um, there are about five nucleotides that fit into this pore. And so the sequence is read in groups of five, mm -hmm. not per nucleotide. And so what happens is if you have a group of five nucleotides, one of which is modified, you tend to get errors surrounding that modified site. So it's very hard to tell which of those uh, positions was modified. And I think, you know, there, there's there been some exciting developments in, in, in nanopore sequencing. I think just last week, a new RNA pore was announced that promises much higher accuracy. Um, of course, that's that was the press release of the company, so I think it remains to to be seen how how well this is going to uh, perform in in, in practice. Um, but yeah, I still think that we have some way to go until those methods are as accurate as the Illumina sequencing based methods. And and I think in the end, you know, the field benefits from different approaches and um, and different ways of thinking about uh, problems as long as you know, we all agree on what ground truth is and yeah. how we should test that. So, mm -hmm. okay. So, I guess as always, it's good to have different complementary methods Absolutely. to then compare. And especially if, y as a field, you cannot really decide on what the best ground truth is. Absolutely. No, no. This is this is really critical, and I think that's been one of the things that um, I try also to emphasize in my lab that. Um, I think results which we've obtained with a single approach um, should always be validated by an orthogonal one as long as this is possible with mm -hmm. the existing technologies. Uh, very often it is. Sometimes it may be laborious or maybe mm -hmm. tricky to do it. Um, but I think this is extremely important. And, and still in research on RNAs, I would say um, a ground truth is a northern blot. <laughs> so if you many if people you, might not even know what exactly and is. this is a little bit you know this is it's it's unfortunate but um if you have two biological samples and you want to make sure that 
ATRNA is more abundant in one of those samples, which is what you've detected by Illumina sequencing or nanopore sequencing, the best way to validate that is to find a tRNA for which this happens and for which you can design a specific probe that you can label either with a fluorophore or, or um, with a radio label. And then you can hybridize this to a membrane and see the same result. Mm -hmm. And this is also something that unfortunately many people in the field do not do. Um, and, and I think that it's, it's the root cause of many of the disagreements uh, because in, in the absence of such validation, it's it's very hard to tell how much of what people observe as, as differences between biological samples are due to technical issues or to true biological variation. Okay. So for everyone working on tRNAs and listening please to that. Northerns, please <laughs> do Northerns. As we say, Northern or it didn't happen, right? So that's, uh, I see. that's okay. at least the, that's the joke in our lab. So. Okay, yeah, cool, interesting. Um, maybe do you want to highlight some of the findings that you and your team have made in the past using tRNA sequencing or like studying tRNAs in maybe complex tissues or a disease context? Well, so what we've um, um, mainly focused on in the past couple of years is trying to understand how um, tRNAs are regulated in different uh, cellular contexts. Um, because, of course, we know that during development and the uh, specialization of, of, of cell types, um, the demand um, on the translation machinery can change dramatically because certain cell types produce a lot of a single protein, while others are very generalists and, um, and, and need to translate lots of mRNAs. And so we really wanted to understand how um, the... Um, the repertoires of tRNAs in different cell types look like, um, and in particular in human cells, because unlike um, coding genes, transfer RNA genes are not that conserved, even among close, closely related um, organisms. So mm. their number and location can can vary quite a lot between humans and mice, for example. And so, um, and so to overcome all of these issues, we um, used um, human-induced pluripotent stem cell-based workflows uh, to derive different cell types in the lab, and uh, which has allowed us to work with homogeneous populations of cells with a very different identity um, that have the same genome and the same complement of tRNA genes, but of course need to make very different proteins. And it's been really surprising to see that um, the complement of tRNAs in these very different cell types seems to be very similar. Um, and so we've rationalized this um, uh, in the following way, that you know the abundance of tRNAs is not only important for the speed of translation, but also for its accuracy. So um, fluctuations in how much of one tRNA there is with respect to others can lead to errors if this mm -hmm. tRNA can now compete um, at, at the wrong codon. And so from our data, it seems like um, metazoans in particular go through inordinate efforts to maintain a relatively stable pool of tRNA anticodons, mm -hmm. um, despite the dramatic reprogramming of gene expression in the background of of, of development. So that's that's been quite surprising because I think it it's it's it goes against many hypotheses that tRNA pools are specialized 
mm-hmm. to the translation demands of different cell types. And and one thing we've also seen, and many others before us as well, is that this this bias in codon usage that is very particular of an organism is really identical across cell types. Um, so it doesn't fluctuate um, as well. So it seems that this this interface between how much of a tRNA there is and how frequently the codon that it that it matches to is used in the transcriptome is set very early on during development and, and cells don't deviate from it and they don't use this as a way to, mm-hmm. to modulate the abundance of specific proteins. And we really think this is because of this, this, this intimate connection between speed and accuracy of decoding that we probably mm-hmm. don't want to mess with um, a little bit too much. But you're also right that um, many uh, human diseases are linked to uh, problems with tRNA metabolism. And while we take a sort of a disease agnostic approach in the lab, we don't study specific genetic defects, but we would rather try and understand how healthy cells regulate um, tRNA expression and modification and, and processing. We have done uh, lots of very interesting work on the enzymes that modify tRNAs in human cells and what the consequences are if those enzymes are, are not active. Um, to, to try and understand what this means for tRNA pools, what this means for translation. And, and so what we also see there is that some tRNAs are um, a lot more affected when losing a specific modification than others. And so at the moment, we're trying to understand the rules that make some tRNAs, let's say, highly dependent on a particular modification for stability or for their function, uh, because there seems to be lots of interesting biology there that uh, is, is hard to predict when, when just looking at uh, sequences. Okay. Okay, let's unpack something that you said in the um, beginning a bit. So you said that tRNA genes across different animals aren't as conserved as, like, Scotting say, genes. other other genes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Why? Do, so on the one hand, they aren't as conserved across animals, but mm-hmm. across tissues within one animal, the tRNA types are are very conserved. Right. That's right, right. Exactly. And this is so and this is exactly why if you take a human mRNA mm-hmm. and you try to express it in bacteria, you often have trouble because the tRNA complement in bacteria has been optimized to match the codon usage in bacterial messenger RNAs and not the codon usage in human mRNAs. So this is this is the part where, you know, the organism determines how much of each tRNA with a specific anticodon there is going to be. And this throughout evolution has been optimized to make translation as accurate and as efficient as possible in this particular organism. Um, on the other hand, um, the, the, the set of tRNA genes in a genome doesn't change throughout development, right? Because all of our cells have the same genome. But different portions of this genome are expressed in different cell types. Um, and so that, of course, means that, uh, you know, you have some regions that are silenced during differentiation, some DNA parts that get compacted and uh, cannot be transcribed anymore. And often some tRNA genes are also located in such regions. Um, but of course, if, if this happens, you may lose a tRNA that is very important for decoding a certain codon. So it seems that the, 
that the location of some tRNA genes, um, their flanking sequences as well, so not only the tRNA gene body, but the, the regions upstream of those um, genes are very specific for the ones that give rise to the bulk of mature tRNAs. So there is a lot of redundancy. Um, most tRNA uh, molecules in the cell are encoded by more than one gene copy that is mm -hmm. found in different genetic contexts. And so a lot of the work that we've done is to kind of deconvolute the importance of the tRNA gene body sequence, its flanking regions for its expression in, um, in different cell types. Yeah. One thing I find very interesting about this, if we think about it again in terms of evolution, so if you usually think about protein coding regions um, changing in the course of evolution, then you have one protein that has changed, maybe a pathway that is for, s for some reason because of this change in the protein change. But with tRNAs, if they are different between organisms, it's a very, or I would assume a very global influence that this change in tRNA can have. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm wondering what would be the evolutionary benefit of having tRNAs that are so evolvable across right. um, animals? Well, so maybe it's it's good to, to kind of clarify how different different is, right? So um, most of the differences uh, come from one or two nucleotides in the gene body and also the location in which those genes are found, uh, and even the copy number um, of those genes across the genome. So it is not that a tRNA that decodes alanine in human cells looks completely differently from a tRNA that decodes alanine in bacteria. They are actually very, very similar. Um, but these small differences are what kind of makes them unique um, in different organisms. Um, and I think the evolvability uh, comes from the fact that, especially in metazoan genomes and in, in mammalian genomes, we have um, a big proportion of the genome that is, of course, not coding. Um, there are a lot of duplications. Um, and so this is what organisms need to make sure does not reprogram tRNA pools. So when you have um, a tRNA gene that is now suddenly present in another region of the genome and could, in theory, increase the level of the transcript by twofold in cells, maybe that is not such a good idea, right? So maybe this is something that we need to silence um, or, um, you know, make sure that um, it doesn't mess up with the, with the accuracy of decoding, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, interesting. I have to say very counterintuitive in the beginning, Absolutely. But yeah, fascinating. Definitely. And I think it's, you know, one, one thing that, that is hard to reconcile in the field is the fact that the number of tRNA genes predicted to be encoded by different organisms varies tremendously. And the number of distinct tRNA transcripts, apart from the ones that have a specific anticodon, also varies tremendously. And so there's been this thought that this has to have some sort of regulatory meaning. Um, but I think if you take a step back and think of it as, hey, you know, 90% of our genome doesn't really have a particular regulatory function, um, we are finding also that many tRNA genes that are predicted are either not expressed or do not contribute substantially to the pool of mature tRNAs uh, in, in cells. And so I think 
again, it's really counterintuitive because if something is there, we would like it to have a meaning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is just human nature. Um, and I think we have very few examples where a, a specific tRNA with a specific sequence has a distinct biological sequence mm -hmm. from another tRNA that has the same anticodon. But do you think it could maybe also be a matter of you don't find what you're not looking for? Exactly. Maybe they Finding the right context, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, of course, we would, you know, we've looked at four different cell types. We haven't looked at 4,000. Mm -hmm. And yeah. this is where, you know, pushing technologies towards the single cell yeah. um, level would really be very mm -hmm. useful. Um, so I would advocate for developing single cell tRNA sequencing technologies mm -hmm. rather than nanopore sequencing because mm -hmm. that is definitely not at the input level for mm -hmm. uh, that is necessary for uh, for single cell um, so i think there if we could probe the, the tRNA repertoires with the same resolution as we can at the moment do for mRNAs there may be some surprises there mm -hmm. cool okay having heard this um I think it's super clear that there are lots of interesting questions with regards to tRNAs. What are the things that keep you awake at night? So <laughs> what, what, are your, what is your vision for the next years? What is it that you definitely want to study in the next five to ten years? Well, so I think, I mean, it's probably about a third of my lab that does not work on tRNAs, shockingly. Um, <laughs> but if, if we stay with tRNAs, um, I think the main questions that, that we would like to answer, and we do have the technology to, uh, to answer at the moment, is what makes some cell types especially vulnerable to defects in tRNA metabolism? Because it's, it's really striking that diseases that are linked to genetic defects in, in the enzymes that, that modify or process tRNAs have a very uh, tissue-specific pathology. So, you know, you need these molecules to translate mRNAs in every possible context. So, And so our data at the moment points to uh, differences in the response to cells uh, to the same defect in, in tRNA. So it doesn't mm -hmm. seem like different tRNA uh, complements are affected in different cell types, but rather how the cells can respond to those defects can differ a lot. And so this is, I think, where most of our exciting discoveries are going to come from um, in the next five years. But we're really, you know, others are also developing technologies that may allow us to address questions that we cannot even imagine right now. So mm -hmm. this is, I think, been a theme throughout my research career that, you know, sometimes come to the lab and I read a paper and I think, oh my God, I'm just going to drop everything I'm doing now <laughs> and, and switch to this because this now allows me to, to address questions I didn't even know I could ask before. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hoping that, you know, apart from what we're doing, obviously there are many other people that are doing very exciting work in the field and hopefully we can benefit from the technologies they're developing to kind of collectively move the field forward. Yeah, cool. I think that's a good way of transitioning to um, like more questions that go beyond science because you already said uh, you're now reading papers and in principle you now have the power to do whatever you want like within some financial constraints <laughs> I'd say as a PI um, but being a PI of course also comes with challenges so I'd be very interested to know what your biggest challenge or hurdle has been so far as a PI. 
I mean, this is, I think it's a, it's a very interesting question. And of course, we as humans tend to forget the hardships mm -hmm. and only remember the good things, right? So I could probably list 10 amazing things about being a PI. Um, Which is nice to hear. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, the hardships are mostly related to the fact that this is a very lonely job. And in particular, um, in the first couple of years, when you transition from being a part of a hopefully well-functioning lab and, and, and a friendly team to kind of being on your own. Uh, and so this, you know, depending on your personality, it can be extremely challenging. And it, it also makes decision-making quite stressful because you don't you often don't have a sounding board or you don't have many people that that you know who could provide you with some honest advice so and and also finding the right team members is definitely challenging for any pi at any career stage i think because none of your dreams or ideas can be realized without amazingly talented people and mm -hmm. those are of course very sought after <laughs> um, and and also sometimes you know sometimes you have a project that that just needs a, a very specific skill set and it so happens that you know you are not able to find the right person and yeah that is that is definitely being among the most challenging um, aspects of leading a lab but uh, how do you recruit people if i may ask so usually, I mean, we're in Munich, so recruiting people happens naturally. This is one of the best places in Europe to uh, to do science. So I think it's very attractive um, to people from all over the world. That's the upside. We've got an amazing um, uh, Max Planck Research School, um, mm -hmm. which which um, also recently got renewed. So um, it will continue to exist um, in a similar form and, and help us uh, recruit great people from all over the world. Um, so that's how the first lab members who, who joined my team uh, were recruited through um, through impress and i was really really fortunate to be able to find some mm -hmm. amazing people that said it has become more difficult recently um because of you know i think the, the general challenges of the of the pandemic and and also because life in munich is very expensive mm -hmm. um, and so i think i i completely understand trainees who have amazing opportunities in many different places going for one that you know allows them to to live in more than 10 square meters uh, throughout their phd so this mm -hmm. is this is always uh, i guess the downside of of big and expensive cities and um, what do you particularly look for in your students going beyond maybe the technical skills right and i think i mean technical skills are probably something that you know it doesn't have to be a technique that is directly related to what the project is about, but rather the ability to execute experiments in a well-controlled way and with results that are interpretable. Uh, so this could be something that, you know, even as simple as cloning. And um, so I think that is something that is really, really important to me because Without having the skills to, to do sound experiments in the lab, it's really hard to become a successful scientist in, you know, in molecular biology. Of course, there are amazing computational biologists that do not know how to hold a pipette and still make amazing discoveries. But in my lab in particular, um, bench skills are really, um, really important. But beyond that, I really look for drive and persistence. Mm -hmm. um, so in what we do, there are long periods of time where things 
either don't work um, or require you to troubleshoot and repeat an experiment many, many times before you actually obtain something that tells you something about biology. And what I have seen in the past six years is that the people that thrive in my lab are the ones that can still get up in the morning and come to the lab during those periods. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is probably a lot more important than you know whether they knew how to sequence RNA before they joined yeah. um, or whether they had read 25,000 papers on tRNA biology, mm-hmm. drive and persistence. Those two things are not something that I can teach Mm-hmm. Um, and and that is really something that is very important in my team. Yeah. Okay, but what is it that you can teach, and how would you um, describe your mentoring style? Well, I think what I can teach is um, is probably how to um, begin identifying important questions and gaps in knowledge, um, and that is something that cannot be taught to undergraduate students. I think because of course they're not. Um, focused in a particular field to the extent that allows them to begin seeing those gaps in knowledge. And and what what I think and I hope that people in my lab gain as a skill is also um, to distinguish claims from evidence, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is, again, something extremely important because we very often have journal clubs where someone says, oh, my God, the abstract of this paper said that they discovered <laughs> that. And then, you know, we sit down and we unpack it and then we go back to the abstract and then we discuss, well, did they actually provide evidence for that claim? And and very often a first year student would be like, mm, I don't know. And hopefully by the second or third year, they would be like, well, you know, if they had added this control and, you know, if they had done this experiment in another way and validated their findings, we would have been convinced. And so mm-hmm. I think these are, you know, you know, finding knowledge gaps and distinguishing claims from evidence are are two skills that are very useful in any scientific um, environment and in industry and academia. And hopefully, people that come out of my lab possess both of those by the end. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, and what would be a piece of advice that you would give young researchers to? quote unquote make it in science i think this is really hard because we have uh, survivor bias right as mm-hmm. as pi so um and i don't necessarily think i've made it uh because my position at the moment is also pretty precarious actually so uh as most max Planck group uh leaders we also do not have permanent positions and uh still hoping to make it but um I think that if you work on problems that you think are important and if you're aware of the fact that any discovery is going to come from hard work and persistence, then I think you're going to be okay. Uh, So my advice would be find a problem that you're really passionate about solving and do your best and realize that, you know, 95% of what you do is either just going to be a lab book entry or, you know, not going to be read by anybody else uh, but you. But those, hopefully those other 5% are the ones that uh, keep you going and are going to change the world. Okay, I think that's a wonderful ending for this podcast. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. I think I learned a lot and um, 
yeah, I hope we got people excited about tRNAs. And yeah, if people are interested, how can they find out more about your research? Well, so we are um, easy to find on the API of Biochemistry uh, website. We're not on social media that much, uh, but anybody who's interested can drop me an email and I'm happy to chat. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much. This concludes my interview with Dr. Danina Djalkova. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more about Dr. Nedyakova's work, visit the website of the MPI of Biochemistry. And if you like our podcast, follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. You'll find everything in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Offspring Magazine, the podcast is brought to you by the Max Planck PhD Net and the science communication working group known as the Offspring Magazine. The intro-outro music is composed by Skrina Van Kumar and the pre-intro jingle is composed by Gustavo Carrizzo. For any feedback, comments or suggestions, please feel free to write us at offspring.podcasts at phdnet.mpg.de. Until next week, stay safe, stay healthy, bye-bye.